it is generally thought by people that if you talk to yourself, you are on your way to decline. People might not say anything at first when they hear you do it, but you can be sure that they're watching you just to look for further signs of regression. But if you notice the psalm that we read, you'll see that the psalmist actually does speak to himself. He tells himself to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul, he says. It is okay to speak to yourself. It all depends on what you say to yourself. And here the psalmist in this psalm is recalibrating himself, reminding himself of who God is in all of His magnificence and glory, and who God is for him as someone who is weak and helpless. So this evening we have the privilege of eavesdropping, or this afternoon rather, we have the privilege of eavesdropping on the psalmist to hear what he says to himself. And he doesn't actually mind that we do that because you'll notice at the end of the psalm, he includes the whole church of God. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. So he begins by speaking to himself but he intends all of the church of God from all places and all ages to hear what he has to say. So what does the psalmist say to himself? The first thing he does in verse 3 is to remind himself not to put his trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. And when he speaks about princes here, you got to think about those who are the movers and shakers in society, those who make decisions that actually impact your day-to-day lives. You can think of governments or the medical community or those who have a lot of wealth whose decisions impact you. And this is not a superfluous command as if He's thinking, why would I tell myself this? This is not something I would do. No, he recognizes his own default position. And what is the default for himself is so often common for all of us. And that is to put our trust in princes, to put our confidence in people who are like us, people whom we can see. You can see this in the Old Testament Scripture a thousand times. Whenever Israel is attacked by their enemies, rather than go to the Lord who has promised that when their enemies come against them from one direction, they would flee from them in seven, they would go to other nations. So Assyria attacks Israel, and Israel goes to Egypt for help against Assyria. That's so common for us to do that. And you can trace this in your own life. Often when you perhaps... It's when you hear a phone call that is somewhat uncomfortable, maybe from the doctor or from some other person that unsettles you, our tendency is to immediately go to someone like us, to speak to our husband or wife, or if no one is home, to get on the phone and to speak to someone else. Because we are comfortable putting our trust in people whom we can see and interact with. And the psalmist says we ought not to do that. We ought not to do, put our trust in princes. And he doesn't just tell himself that it ought not to be done, but you can see here that he 
argues why it ought not to be done. He says in verse 3, for instance, that the Son of Man is not to be trusted because in Him there is no salvation. So they might be able to help you in a myriad of ways. Doctors are helpful, and we recommend the use of them, and psychologists and psychiatrists, and, and government can play a role in the stabilization of society. All these people can help us to some degree, but for what we actually and ultimately need for salvation, they are of no value to us whatsoever. There is no salvation for us in them. And so it's futile to put your confidence in humanity. And the reason it's futile is because they're so fragile. Notice what he says in verse 4, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So someone might have the best plans for you. And they've gone over it two or three times. All the T's are dotted. No, they aren't. All the T's are crossed, actually. All the I's are dotted. It's perfect. It's suited exactly for your situation, they think. And then they die. And the plans come to nothing. The fragility of humanity renders them a poor trust. There is a monument to this in the small town of Oban on the west coast of Scotland. Perhaps some of you have been there. It's a small town of 9,000. It's a huge tourist attraction. And on a sunny day, and they do have those once in a while there, and on a sunny day, it is a glorious place to be. You can see out over the sea, and the, the boats take you to the Isle of Mull or Iona or Staffa. But if you're in the harbor and you look up towards the town, which is built on a hill, you'll see on Battery Hill this mammoth structure. It's called McCaig's Tower. John McCaig was a wealthy banker, and he was quite impressed with Roman architecture. And so he built the structure in a circle, 660 feet in diameter. It's built of granite. It has uh, arches, uh, or it has tiers, rather, with arches in them. And then he was going to build a museum in it and an art gallery. And the building was to have a central tower. And in the arches on the central tower, he was going to have statues of himself and his siblings and his parents. It, he had great plans for this. He started building in 1897. And by 1902, he died. And all that's left of his plans is just the outer shell. There's nothing inside the building. There's no windows. There's no roof. Nothing. It's not only called McCaig's Tower. It's also called McCaig's Folly. It's a standing monument to Psalm 146. Verse 4, do not put your trust in princes because when his breath departs, he returns to the earth and on that very day, his plans perish. So what should he do then? Well, he doesn't just tell you not to put your trust in princes because he wants you to be helpless. He actually has his own best interests at heart and yours as well because he wants you to show the futility of trusting in humanity in order that you might put your full confidence in God. 
And so that's where he moves in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So he knows they're, they're mutually exclusive. You either put your trust in humanity, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, or you put your trust in God. You can't do both. And so he decries humanity. This is a, a foolish place to put your confidence in order that he might thrust you to cast yourself upon the keeping of God. And just as he argued with you why you should not put your trust in princes, now he argues why one ought to put his trust in God. And notice the first thing that he says, God is strong. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. All those massive mountains were called into being by this God. He spoke and they were. The voluminous volcanoes are under His control. Even the smallest, the most intricate microorganisms, the things that you can only see with a microscope, all that is under the sovereign control of this God who by His Word has brought them into existence. So that He's not just a big picture God concerned with the big things, but He's even concerned about the details of life. This is a God of massive strength who just spoke and it was. He's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he upholds it. That's what I think the psalmist is saying when he talks about the one who keeps faith forever. So that's not that he has created things and they just follow the laws of nature that are inbuilt in creation and he just stands back and watches. No, he's directly and intimately involved in everything that happens. So the sun rises at his behest. It goes down this evening at his command. Everything in this world around us and all of its massiveness and all of its intricacy has been created by the God of Jacob. He's strong, the psalmist reminds himself. And this is an important thing for you when you find yourself in difficult straits, when things overwhelm you, when you don't see a way clear. Sometimes when you don't see a way clear, even after you've consulted with other sons of men in whom there is no salvation, what you need to know about God is that nothing is too difficult for him because he's a God of massive strength and colossal might. You might remember that passage in Jeremiah 32 where the Lord promises that his people are going to be brought back from bondage into uh, the land of promise and that people will be buying houses again in Jerusalem. And it's just too much for Jeremiah to wrap his mind around it. He just can't understand how this is even possible. And then he says this, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Whatever you say you will do, you can do. How do I know? Because you made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. Or think about uh, the apostles in the early church. They're, they had been commanded no longer to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And when they were released from custody, 
they gathered with the church and they lifted their voices together to God and said, now listen to what they say. You see, they're in difficult situations. They're overwhelmed by the opposition of the Jews. It doesn't seem like the gospel can go forth clearly and that the name of Jesus can be proclaimed without opposition. This is what they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They remind themselves of the greatness and majesty of God. That's what we need to do more than we do. So often we fuddle and muddle our way through the difficult situations. It's, it's like a child that has uh, tried to untie her shoelaces and has actually got the shoelaces in a knot and while trying to untangle the knot just makes the knot all that much tighter and multiplied. And finally, the child comes to daddy and says, Daddy, can you take this apart? Why would she do that? Because she knows her daddy's strong. He can do it. I can, but he can. And we ought to know this about God. Whatever our problems and burdens and weights, whatever the confusion and consternations of our mind, none of this is a problem for God. Why? Because he made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he keeps faith forever. He's strong, but he's also kind. That's important because uh, it's possible, isn't it, to be strong and unkind. We come across those people all the time. They're able to help you, but they don't really care about you. In fact, they use your weakness against you. They're brutes. They're strong, but they're not kind. But God is strong and kind, and that's what you need. Children, I want you to imagine that you're in the car, and there's a punctured tire, and so you're on the side of the Anthony Henday Way. Is that what it's called? And uh, for some reason, there's no one in your vehicle who's able to change the tire, and so you're just hoping someone will stop to change the tire for you. And you see all these trucks whiz by, and there's big, burly men behind the steering wheels, and you know they could help you. I mean, they don't even need a jack. They could just lift up your vehicle with one hand and loosen the, the lug bolts with the other. They're strong. Well, they don't care about you. They got other things to do. You're not in their, in their thinking. They're not on their agenda. They're strong, but they're not kind. And then, finally... A car stops, and you think, ah, we'll soon be on the way, and you wait, and no one shows up until after a little while the door opens, and then this old lady comes up to you, you roll down the window, what's the problem? And you tell her, well, the tire's punctured, and I can't replace it. No one in this car can replace it. Oh, she says, I would love to help you, but my back isn't what it used to be anymore. She's kind, but she's not strong, so she can't help you. Now, if you had to choose who you would have for lunch, you'd 
most likely choose the one who is kind but not strong rather than the one who's strong but not kind because you love that lady because her heart is there to to help you but she can't she just has it her limitations but she's a lot kinder i tell you than than those who are strong and able to help you but don't give a rip about you whatsoever so if you had to choose the one you choose the one who's kind over the one who's strong but the thing is with god you never have to make a decision shall i have one who's strong or shall i have one who's kind no god is strong and god is kind and the psalmist reminds himself of that he takes the most vulnerable in jewish society and he says god cares for all of them so there's the oppressed probably oppressed by the wealthy there's the hungry probably hungry because of injustice the prisoners the blind who are ravaged by uh, the, the 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 cause the effects of sin in this world those who are bowed down they're just weighed down with the load of living life under the sun in this world of creation that's groaning there's the sojourners the widow and the fatherless the most vulnerable in society and he says it doesn't matter who they are those who are most helpless most needy god takes care of them because he's kind so he gives uh, justice for the oppressed he brings food to the hungry he sets the prisoners free those who are blind he opens their eyes he he gently lifts up those who are bowed down and the sojourners the widows the fatherless they find a champion in god he's strong and he's kind and his heart goes out in compassion to those who are needy and the wonderful thing is that he's strong and he's kind and he's strong and kind forever will he be this way next year of course Will he be this way for my children? Yes, for all generations. What about my grandchildren? Oh yes, there's no regime change on the horizon. He's like this always because this is his character. He's unchangeably strong and unchangeably kind. It's not that he gets older and wearier and weaker. It's not that he gets grumpier as he continues to exist. No, that's not the way God is. He's unchangeably strong and kind. He is strong and kind forever. But I want you to notice that he's not strong and kind forever for every one. You might have noticed the contrast as I read through the psalm between what it says at the end of verse 9 and what it says at the end of verse 8. In verse 8, it says the Lord loves the righteous. The end of verse 9, it says, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that these are the two categories of people in the Old Testament, uh, the, the righteous and the wicked. The, the book of Psalms opens with that. The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So you're either wicked or you're righteous. Now when you think of these two categories, you ought not to think in the first place that the righteous are those who always do what is righteous, and the wicked are those who are continually wicked. As if the determination is behavior. Now it's true that the righteous 
generally are righteous, that that's the trajectory of their life, and the wicked generally are wicked, but it has more to do with their relationship to God. What have they done with the God of the covenant, the Lord who has come to them in grace and mercy? The wicked are those who will not bend the knee to Him. They're the self-made men and women, those who can do it on their own, who say, we will not have this king to rule over us. Whereas the righteous are aware of their own weakness and need and have humbled themselves before the majesty of this God who is strong and kind and put their trust and confidence in Him. That's the strong, that's the righteous and the wicked. And the psalmist is saying that it's the righteous, those who have committed themselves and sworn allegiance to this king and have made themselves by his grace subjects of his majesty, those are the ones who know his love and favor. And the rest are living a precarious life. It's it's like their, their lives are Jenga tables, you children, or Jenga games, you children know what those games are. You take a block from the bottom and you put it on top. The lives of the wicked are like Jenga games built on a wobbly table and just one bump from the sovereign God and their lives come crashing in ruin. He brings the way of the wicked to ruin. So really what this psalmist is saying, what are you doing with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you submitting to Him and acknowledging Him as your sovereign Savior? Or are you going it on your own as self-made men and women and independent boys and girls? I say that because as you read through the psalm, you can't help thinking that what the psalmist says about God is perfectly true about our Lord Jesus Christ. You can read through the gospel accounts and you see that Jesus is strong. Now, you might not think he is at first glance, but but you have to remember that Christ has an existence before his birth in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, so that before the foundation of the world, he was in this holy trinity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he is the one who created all things as The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, by him and for him all things were created. So it is the Lord Jesus Christ who made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he's the one who keeps faith forever because God upholds all things by his powerful word. And even now our Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in power until all his enemies become a footstool for him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings on earth. But it's true as you read through the gospel accounts, the weakness of our Lord Jesus comes to the forefront. He's there as a little child, helpless, needing to be nursed by his mother Mary. And then he's ridiculed and scorned, misunderstood by his disciples, forsaken by them in his hour of need. He's arrested by the Jewish leaders. He's handed over to the Romans. And the Roman soldiers put a crown of thorn upon his head and a purple robe up on him. And they mock him and scorn him and hit him and spit upon him. This is weakness, profound weakness. At least it appears to be that way. And then they crucify him drive the nails into his hands and feet. 
This is our Lord Jesus who is weak. But don't let his weakness overshadow his glory and his strength. Because we catch glimpses of that, don't we? Even in the gospel accounts. So that there is this sea that is opposed to Christ and his disciples in the boat, threatening to swamp them. And, and he stands up and he says, peace, be still. And the waves are calm and the wind dies down. And the disciple says, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Or think about the way he comes into the, to the temple and drives out the money changers. He's strong. He stands at the grave of Lazarus. The man has been dead for four days. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And, and wouldn't you know it, out of the tomb comes Lazarus. This dead man has been raised to life. He's strong. And what is the cross but the victory of Christ where he crushes the head of the serpent as, as vindicated by his resurrection from the dead on the third day. He is a strong Savior. Make no doubt about it whatsoever. And he's kind. He's very kind. It's written all over the pages of the gospel. You see him uh, with these crowds who are hankering for his attention. And he's tired. He's bone weary because he's been ministering to them for so long. And he's went away with his disciples, but the crowds just follow him. And he sees the crowds like they are sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them and begins in his tiredness and weakness he begins to teach them. And when his disciples say, you better send them home, he says, I know you feed them, and he feeds the hungry. Or think about uh, what he says to, to, to that uh, widow of Nain. She's on the way to the graveyard to bury her son, her only son. Jesus stops the procession, puts his hand on the beard, speaks to the young man. He's raised to life, and he Jesus gives him back to his mother. Such kind compassion. Or, th or think about that story on the outside of Jericho, blind Bartimaeus, calling out for Jesus, the son of David, the king, have mercy on me. Everyone's telling him to shut his mouth. No, he says, I will persist. And, and then Jesus says, call him to me. And then this is what throws me every time as, the, as Bartimaeus stands before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The king says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Is that just upside down? just backwards. That's not the way it should be. It's Bartimaeus, what should you do for Jesus? He's the king, you know. But that's not the way our king is. Our king is so kind, so gentle, so loving, so compassionate. What do you want me to do for you? And then think of the cross. There's no way that Jesus could ever wish to go to the cross. That was his great struggle in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, it was part of his holiness, part of his sinlessness, that, that he could not wish the judgment of his father to come crashing down upon him, cascading over him like the Niagara Falls. He had to resist that, because no one who is right with God wants to be under the judgment of God. But he was willing to say, not my will, but your will be done, not just for his Father's glory, though that is true, but also because he loved his people. He cared for them. He laid down his life for his sheep. No one took it from him, 
but he lay it down. He had that authority from God to lay it down and to take it up. And he, in love and compassion, he gave himself for our sins. He's kind. He's strong. He's kind. He's strong and kind forever. You might think that uh, now that the Lord Jesus is in heaven, he's forgotten about you. Out of sight, out of mind. That as you read through the Gospels, yeah, you can see his kindness through the pages of Scripture, his tenderness. You, you might wish, oh, that I lived back then, that I as a leper coming up to Jesus and said, if, if you can, if you will, rather, you can make me clean. And, and he reaches out his hand and touches this leper in kind compassion and says, I will be clean. You, you might wish that you were there then so that you might know his touch and experience his kind compassion. But I tell you, it's better that Jesus goes away. It's better to be where you are now than to be with him then on the dusty roads of Galilee. Because Jesus is now glorified, and if anything, his heart is even more capacious. He's more loving, more compassionate, more tender-hearted to his children. It's not out of sight, out of mind. The heart of the Lord Jesus in heaven still goes out to sinners on earth. And whatever your need, whatever your concern, he cares for you and is able to do something about it because he's strong and kind forever. That's why I commend this Christ to you. Don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in yourself as if somehow you can make it on your own, either for the difficulties and struggles of this life or when you stand before the throne of God in eternity. Don't put your trust in princes. It's futile. There's nothing that you can say that can keep you from God bringing ruin upon you. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's so kind and generous that he gives himself to you and accomplishes everything that he needs to accomplish so that he will be of value to you. He's not someone who just comes up and says, I wish to help you, but I can't. No, he wants to help you. And he can because he's strong and he's kind forever. I haven't uh, addressed the title that is given to God in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. It's not an uncommon title in the Scripture. You'll find it in Psalm 20, Psalm 47. And um, you'll find it in Isaiah the prophet as well. But it's so appropriate. Because you, you know who Jacob is, right? Jacob is Esau's twin, but what's Jacob's default position whenever he runs into trouble, whenever problems arise? Jacob's a schemer. He's a planner. He knows how to deceive. I can figure this out. So, so in Genesis 32, remember how, how Jacob is coming back from his father-in-law Laban who has deceived him for years. And so he, he needed to leave his father-in-law Laban 
But the problem is that he's on his way towards his brother Esau, from whom he had swindled the birthright so many years before. So he's between a, har, a rock and a hard place, between Laban and, and, and Esau. And so, so what's Jacob do? Well, Jacob does what Jacob always does. I've got a plan. I'm going to placate Esau. I'm going to appease him. I'm going to turn aside his anger so that he's going to accept me. How are you going to do that, Jacob? Well, I know just what I'm going to do. I'm going to overwhelm him with all my wealth, and I'm going to overwhelm him with my generosity. So I'm not just going to give a gift in one lump sum. I'm going to put the gift in small groups and with spaces in between so that it looks bigger than it actually is. And that's what he does. He sets his plan in motion sends his family on ahead, crosses over the brook Jabbok over for the night, and then God meets him. And God wrestles with him. And Jacob is a self-made man. He can prevail. He's strong in himself. And so the angel of the Lord is not winning until he touches the hip socket of Jacob, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him, and you can't wrestle with a hip out of joint because you pivot on your hip to throw your opponent. And then what does Jacob do? The angel says, let me go, for the day has broken. And Jacob, in his weakness now, says, I will not let you go until you bless me. There was no confession of weakness or need as long as Jacob was strong, but God broke him, and in his weakness he clings. Blessed is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And I love the way the story ends. We read that uh, in the morning, Jacob got up to leave, and uh, as he passed Penuel, he was limping because of his hip. So he had a permanent weakness for the rest of his life. But the sun rose upon him. That is to say, in his weakness, the smile of God was on him. And that's the best way to go through life. Not self-confident, but self-aware of your own weakness and trusting in God, the one who is strong and kind forever, and knowing his smile upon you. As the psalmist reflects on who this God is, you'll notice that he makes a commitment in verse 2. Not only that he will praise the Lord, but that he will praise the Lord as long as he lives, that he will sing praises to my God while he has his being. And then he tells the congregation, the church of God, to praise the Lord as well. And when you think of who this God is and who He is for us in His majesty and in His mercy, in His strength and in His kindness, and in the eternality of His strength and kindness, well, what else in the world would you do except praise the Lord? Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, what a blessing it is to sit under the ministry of your word and to be reminded of the things that we need to know so that we might live our lives in confident 
trust in you in the midst of our weakness and vulnerability to find in you a strong and kind God of grace and mercy. So we pray that you would humble us so that we might cast all our anxieties upon you because you care for us and you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So bless us, our gracious God, we pray, and enable us to speak to ourselves about who you are so that we might commit ourselves to praising you in all that we do for as long as we exist. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us uh, sing together the first three stanzas of Psalm 146. Psalm 146, 1, 2, and 3.